Anywho, hi everyone. Welcome again to another episode of Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I'm just chatting here with with Jacob and Garrett. We have a very nice chat today with author, professor, writer, Marxist researcher Andrew Hartman, who wrote a book called A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars. It's a nice little talk where we get into everything from moral panics, culture wars, a bit of history. Yeah, and it, it, it's one of those things where I think you are. it goes places, and I think you'll enjoy the ride what did what did y'all think uh, i really enjoy oh, i think ahead. i would like to read the book i yes, I, I, I don't I'm, I'm normally opposed to reading things that don't involve people in costumes beating each other up but i think i might make an exception here i really enjoyed it the conversation the i, I enjoyed his his article in the baffler that i read and I, I i would like to pick up the book as well but i yeah i don't know i've the last several episodes jeremy i've done of this i felt like such an oddball and this is this is one where i actually felt like a normal person so oh well no this is there's you know <laughs> this is podcasting there's no oddballness about it it's kind of like you know everybody knows or doesn't know some level of shit but at some point the whole point is to I mean, these are effectively it's like it's like late night pa- late night chat show panel discussions of like you put a it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy this is revolution because most of their shows are it's not just like talk you know the host talking to one guest it's always like multiple guests and having that panel you know like like the, like the old Dick Cavett or Mike Douglas show or you know fill in your favorite there the the you know the benefit comes in the interplay of all these different people talking together. At once, rather than just kind of like a straight one-on-one interview. Right. Besides, Marin's got that market cornered. Right. The uh, but yeah, I think the I do. I currently have the one copy of the book. That I think I think they only have one copy, but I think the only the sole copy that Multnomah County Library has. It is it is worth. And that's the two things I forgot to ask him was like because of, I mean we had quite an extended conversation, but I forgot to ask him about if we could get it, getting into more of like. Because he, he mentioned the PMRC, but I think getting we could shit we could do an entire episode on the culture war, moral panic aspects of the satanic panic, especially the uh, the eighties eighties parents against metal freakouts. But the other thing was I forgot to mention like his interview that he had on that manifold podcast, talking to two much more cloistered, you know, kind of like liberal and slightly more conservative liberal professors who were much more amusingly cloistered in their uh, political spectrum. Yeah, they asked him about Snowflake. Yeah, and it was, at some point it's like yeah, it's like two liberal professors who really need to get up, get out of uh, East Lansing a hell of a lot more. Yeah. But anyway, Wait, what is this? I'm sorry. The the there is Andrew went on an episode, I think it's called The Manifold or Manifold Learning. It is I believe it's out of out from a couple of a uh, couple of uh, academics. I think they're out of Michigan State. I'm pro- I might be wrong, but I it was like the uh, the interview that pod interview that I I sent you a link of. Oh, you sent it to me. Okay. Yes. It's texted you that yeah. one it was it's interesting in that it's a definitely you know let discussion of left versus liberal but i saw that they had scott adams on recently can we have scott adams on um sure although we, we can only we can only ask him questions about the dilbert animated series yeah we just keep it strictly to the dilbert first yeah what, el- what else would there be to talk to him about i don't understand uh yeah. the, the fact that he lives in a he literally lives in a dilbert, dilbert house but that is uh, how wild yeah, the yeah that's the other thing about I guess questions for another time is like asking Andrew is like I think I kind of asked it but it was like the like culture wars are much more fueled by because you only have 
like right wingers only you know they only know <laughs> they only know from liberals and they think everybody because like the the only the only people they talk to are like you know high status liberal media people and they don't like right. you know, there's no there's there's no like left conversations that get in there because leftists aren't allowed on broadcast media or at least not as much uh, well predominant for about four or five decades they weren't anyway the, this the, the anyway, folks hope you enjoyed this interview about to hear once again we survive we thrive and well we don't really thrive we try to survive uh, along and make the show from you know thanks to viewers like you if you'd like to do a little one-time donation or you know help us make the show you can head to patreon.com slash giving the mic subscribers get uh, the show a few days in advance also I occasionally will drop in you know link cat photos that don't get any don't get surfaced anywhere else as well as little sometimes i'll give out like lists of podcast recommendations of cool stuff that you should be listening to so that's at patreon.com slash giving the mic if you have any questions or comments you can email us at giving the mic uh i should say giving the mic at gmail.com we're on facebook and twitter uh, at giving the mic yada 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 all right and without further ado uh on with the show you professor or can we just call you uh andrew andrew is much preferable thank you <laughs> professor we got a question but anyway when uh, did that change by the way people i think you know back in the day people wanted to be called professor or doctor or whatever and then we got much more informal about that which i'm not uh, complaining about i'm just wondering yeah, it's totally when like the 60s countercultural types entered the academy and they got really informal and there's kind of been uh, a reversion back to it and I think that's especially prominent amongst women professors because they want the sort of recognition and respect for, especially from their male students so right. like on my on my campus everyone's really adamant that we all go by doctor such and such but if I'm not on campus I hate that shit so <laughs> you mean you don't like being it's like it's like yeah you don't want to be referred to by rank off base yeah i i i taught in denmark for a year and that's just a very informal culture and they all called their professors by their first name you called your like pediatrician by his or her first name like everybody in the whole society is on a first name basis and i think it just sort of like is this social democratic ethos that infuses the culture in some excellent ways i would say mm -hmm. kind of like a lot less quite possible well not even possibly i'd say a lot less like national obsession with like hierarchy and professionalism but yeah it's yeah but kind of the uh, it just makes me flashback to the the dr jill biden thing that people freaked out about about three or four months ago well yeah. correction a certain co professional cadre freaked out about uh, a few months ago yes that's but, exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> gotcha and with that, welcome to, uh, ladies and gentlemen and other folks, uh, welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy, here with Garrett and Jacob on a lovely, yeah, relatively lovely Saturday mid-morning, talking to Dr. Andrew Hartman, a special guest doctor. Andrew, could you uh, please introduce yourself to uh, the viewing audience? Sure. So my name's Andrew, and I'm a Virgo. But more seriously, I, I teach history at Illinois State University in normal Illinois. There's a little history behind the 
town's name of normal. I focus on modern U.S. history, written a few books. The one that I think we'll probably talk most about today is a history of the culture wars, a war for the soul of America. Who put out who put out the the revised the revised version just came out, right? Did yeah, so the first edition came out in 2015. Uh, University of Chicago Press, mm -hmm. and I made the bold prediction in the conclusion that the culture wars were mostly like a lot of them were settled and coming to an end. Then Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president and seemed like I was exactly wrong. And then the press asked me to write a new conclusion and they put out a second edition in 2019. And I've determined that what is bad for the country is good for book sales. <laughs> Yeah. In any case, so yeah, that I that's I guess what I'm most known for amongst historians and some other people is that book. But I'm currently putting the finishing touches on a book about Karl Marx in America. And so if, you know, like you, you want to talk about Marx and how people have interpreted Marx in America, we could do that. Hopefully going to be done writing that book by the end of this year, so. Cool. Yeah. I I, I study and teach modern US history. Awesome. Yeah, and that's how I mean I found you through I guess catching your appearance on the excellent This Is Revolution show, I guess, YouTube show, podcast, whatever. And and because I have been I think my, my, my I have an interest in not, you know, a mix of like moral panics and a culture war and conspiracy theory because all three of them kind of feed in together. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here. Oh, sorry for interrupt for interrupting you there in a minute. Can you also real quick again? We're not the. Mo this is why I try I try to edit everything because conversations are weird like that. What 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 now do we define as modern? Is that like just post war or when does modern in the either academic or colloquial sense tend to start? That's a good question and one that is constantly debated. So most U.S. historians, if you teach at a big university like mine, you're either going to, like one of your main classes that you teach will be this U.S. history survey, and that's divided right at the Civil War. And so I teach Civil War to the present. I just finished teaching that last week. And so many of us, because of the teaching division of the survey, consider anything after the Civil War modern. And I think there's some good arguments for that because things really did change dramatically in terms of the corporate organization of the United States that happened rather rapidly in following the Civil War. But, you know, a lot of people would just say, ah, oh, 20th century. And I guess maybe some would say there's another division at World War II. But I tend to go with the Civil War division because I think things really did change dramatically after the Civil War. And we're still on that trajectory, I would argue. Gotcha. Yeah. When I was, I did undergrad, well, undergrad, I went to school in at the University of Michigan for a double engineering degree and the one history class I did take was U.S. I think that was the split was U.S. till 1865 was one class and the second class was 1865 till now. Very standard stuff, most universities. So if you teach at a smaller college, a liberal arts college where you're maybe one of two or three U.S. historians, you would teach probably both halves of the survey. When I taught in Denmark for a year. I taught U.S. history from Columbus to Obama at the time, which was really interesting. Cause in then one, you, in so, one term? Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's it was in an American studies program in Denmark. And, well, you know, they're used to studying history that goes 
back much further, and so it wasn't that much of a stretch for them to sort of conceptualize 500 years of history as opposed to what we're used to as sort of breaking them down into shorter chunks. Gotcha. Okay, well, back to the original track, I guess, about your book, uh, A War for the Soul of America, History of the Culture Wars. Can you, I guess, can you give a basic pitch for the book? Just to bring up yeah, sure. our, because I've read most of it. Our, our two co-hosts have not got a chance to because I, I had the only copy our library has. And But yeah, if you could, please. Yeah, sure. So it is history of the culture wars in the sense that there's a period in our recent history, specifically the 80s and 90s, when that term began to be used to refer to a whole bunch of debates in American society surrounding issues like abortion, affirmative action, censorship, gay rights, feminism, you know, debates about what was being taught in schools in particular history, these sort of big national controversies that the major newspapers, the major television shows, right-wing radio that they all focused on in the 80s and 90s, and they came to be called the culture wars. And a lot of scholars, in particular political scientists and sociologists, wrote about it at the time. But no historian had really sort of tackled the question, where did they come from, or even what are they? And so I tried to do that, and I start in the 1960s and argue, I think, correctly, that... The, these debates that we call the culture wars really did emerge in the 1960s and centered around the new left sort of movements for liberation, whether it be countercultural, anti-war or black power, Chicano power, American Indian movement, feminism, gay liberation. These movements really did sort of change the tilt of the national culture and ever since concerns those changes and so that's the basic polarization or the basic tension that i would argue even though the culture wars have changed pretty dramatically in some ways that is still the basic division in our society around which people organize into these two camps in the culture wars Excellent. Guys, any questions yet? I got some, but questions and or responses. No, I mean, I think that I think that it still feels like we're we're getting our our bearings here. I, I read the bat the long baffler piece you wrote. I, I enjoyed that. So, but that's my grounding so far in 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 your understanding of of the culture wars. Okay, yeah. So that was probably about 2017 or 18. Kind of, I was asked by the then editor Chris Lamond to write a article on the culture wars in the early Trump years, and that became the basis for the new conclusion to the second edition of the book. So, so you're you're kind of caught up on what i think currently if not historically mm -hmm. okay yeah that was one of the things about i just <laughs> let's say there was just something about just the sense of i think that you that you talked about in the conclusion of the original edition that's you know either the culture wars were either ended or fizzling out but you know that dialectic will come and bite you on the ass now won't it so. yeah it sure will so i mean i was since you seem to have read the first conclusion much to my shame <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you make bold arguments that people can argue with, so I achieved that. And it seemed like in the almost all of the early reviews of the book, they focused on the conclusion. But whatever. I didn't argue that necessarily these types of cultural conflicts were coming to an end. Like, they've always been a feature of American society, but they ebb and flow. I thought we were at an ebbing point, and I was clearly wrong. 
<laughs> I thought that sort of the logic that informed the culture wars in the late 20th century, which flowed out of these divisions from the 19 that formed in the 1960s, I thought that particular dynamic was over. But I was definitely uh, wrong about that. And Trump was sort of the perfect sort of manifestation of a revival of the right wing culture wars. Hmm. Definitely. I this one is more of a meta question. I don't know. This might be a bit too early. No, fuck it. Too early my problem, Jeremy, is I wanted to ask like questions I thought were a little bigger than we. <laughs> it's third. Well, no. The, yeah, this is our. Yeah, this is a non. How about this? A non-linear conversation. Yeah, even better. You know, hey, what? You know, everything is. It's you know, it's all fed through the. You know, we're. It's all spectacle anyway. Capital S. We're just talking to each. other. We're literally talking to each other through screens. And uh, and in you know, I don't know. If I ever have the enough money to to build enough technology, I really do want. To revive, resurrect Guy Debord and Adorno, and give them both smartphones with with social media on them, and just see how long it would take before they just screamed, or just you know, or just or, or well, screamed or laughed at being proven right. So for Adorno, that would be a very sort of quick resurrection because suicide would come quickly after the resurrection for him. He would be, he would be like both not surprised but completely and utterly sickened by what he saw. Yeah, this is the funny thing is like, with the exception of his like some of his culture, you know, I guess maybe the somebody once said the difference between him and Roland Barthes talk writing about writing about low culture or about pro wrestling was at least Barthes enjoyed pro wrestling, whereas. Dorno just wanted, you know, was the was the classical nerd who detested jazz. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, Adorno. When it, I love reading Adorno, don't get me wrong, and he's not for everybody. That's for sure. It takes a certain sort of taste, right? But he really just hated most things modern and thought that everything had been corrupted by capitalism. And let's face it, he wasn't wrong. Right. Yeah. But you still have to live and enjoy life, and so I think you know, if I had to. I would have rather have been Bart's because like watching and enjoying wrestling <laughs> is better than just being a cranky old curmudgeon. Yeah. A better way of existence, I would argue. Gotcha. Yeah. The, I guess the, the meta, the somewhat meta, I think that's kind of a meta question, but is because much like with conspiracy theories, I'm very interested in kind of what either social or psychological function conspiracy theories hold, but also what kind of, what function do culture wars like what do they you know what do they serve what is the like what kind of like psychological mechanism are they either aggravating or responding to or it's like you know what's the uh, i don't know what's the psychoanalytic guts of like what the hell the you know like how do, what is the function of these things yeah that's a really good question and something that i don't know i'm not sure i necessarily answered that in my book but i still continue to ponder it because i'm not sure it's entirely answerable but i have suspicions i think that people enjoy the culture wars in a sort of like psycho deeply sort of psychoanalytic way jusance as lacan would have said mm -hmm. i think that so you have these like massive cultural changes and at one level people have to know that there's no going back I think they might not admit it publicly. They might not admit it to themselves. There's no making America great again. That is impossible. And I think people have to understand that. But pronouncing that we have to go back and fighting against people who seem to appreciate change or the recent changes gives people meaning it gives people a lot of enjoyment and it also allows that's a way for people to adjust to these changes and so some of the terms of the debate over the years in the culture wars have shifted dramatically and like 
take, for example, gay rights. In the 1980s, the Christian right was so vicious in their attack on the gay rights movement, on homosexuality, on linking like AIDS to immoral behavior. And it was a very common argument amongst like national leaders of the Christian right, people who were constantly on television to argue that people who were dying of AIDS were getting what they deserved. Right? Yeah, like a, like a almost to the to an almost not just ludicrous, but almost like a pathological level of ire and condemnation they had to infuse it with. Yeah, undoubtedly, you you see far less of that, right? And so I think that speaks to a massive shift in our culture that. I mean, from my vantage point, has been a positive one. We're a less sort of masochistic culture when it comes to gay rights and gender and sexuality. But like people making the people fighting these debates in a way was them just sort of like in, adjusting to it. And eventually, like even some of the most sort of prude leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention had to admit they had lost the fight. Right. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, these people are all going to burn in hell, but we can't fight for this anymore. We've lost. Yeah. Is that necessarily true, though? I mean, looking at things from a broader perspective, there has been an ebb and flow with, you know, a, a lot of different things that people commonly accepted as rights. So, you know, I, I, and I think there's some pop culture that kind of speaks to that anxiety that things are going to regress. I think Handmaid's Tale is something that definitely indulges in that. But I mean... I think Handmaid's Tale is drawing from things like, for example, the situation in some countries in the Arab world where you had uh, extremely liberal societies and they were heading in a direction where women were increasingly gaining rights and a lot of that progress is rolled back. No, so listen, I never sort of assume progress is one way. I never assume that like, oh, gay marriage is legal, codified by the Supreme Court. And that that will never change. And I think, you know, the history of the Arab world is a sort of excellent example of, of a sort of like things used to be much better. In fact, you could argue in many ways better than in other than in some parts of the West when it comes to cultural openness in the in the sort of Arab world. And now things are much, much worse in the United States. I'm going to make sort of a bold argument that I'm sure a lot of people could pick apart. But in the United States, when these types of liberties what you might call freedoms are achieved, they're rarely rolled back. In the courts, they're particularly reluctant to take away things that have been given. Yeah. So it's so it's not like people's attitudes might, as, you, as I've said and you've repeated, ebb and flow, but it's rare when rights are taken back. I mean, in, when it comes to like personal liberties, individual rights. Now, there are other forms of sort of rights that I think are heavily rolled back if we're talking about like a right to a standard of living those types of things but when it comes to like you can't be sort of legally repressed due to who you are due to your identity those types of rights are rarely if ever rolled back in american society it doesn't mean it can't happen or hasn't happened it doesn't mean it couldn't happen again it's just it's a pretty rare thing and so like i think this is sort of the inscription of the declaration of independence in our sort of like i don't believe in this in this type of thing but i'm going to say it anyways a sort of national dna but there's like pros and cons to that because liberty has in some ways some pretty what i would argue reactionary components to it so but when it comes to sort of what i would consider the individual rights and the rights revolutions in particular of the 20th century they don't really get rolled 
back necessarily, especially in terms of legal interpretations, as you said. Yeah, well, as far as this country goes, I can think of a couple examples where, and we're maybe getting a little bit off of specifically culture here, but there there were things that I took for granted growing up that I think are very much uh, part of the conversation now. So, for example, growing up, I think people just sort of assumed that torture wasn't an acceptable method of getting information for the most part, and now that is something that is just sort of accepted, you know, enhanced interrogation. We've come up with pretty words for it. You know, they're kind of nibbling around the edges of abortion, for example. And so it, it seems like there, there's a lot of things that were just sort of commonly accepted. Free speech, actually, would be the big one. And that one I find interesting because that the critique of free speech that I'm seeing isn't just coming from the paleo conservatives and people on the right who want to, you know, b- ban sexy movies. It's coming from people on the left as well. Yeah. So I wouldn't disagree with you. In particular, your first two examples, torture and abortion. I mean, abortion was always hotly contested. And so the greatest expansion of it, of course, with Roe v. Wade, the way in which Roe v. Wade was framed was so narrow as to be it was almost like inevitable that it was going to be chipped away at, even though attitudes towards abortion haven't become more conservative. In fact, the opposite. But the free speech one, like I agree with you that it's we're at a, a weird what I would call disturbing moment in that many on the left are seem more willing to restrict free speech than previously. But we've had like pretty extreme moments in our history of the curtailing of free speech. We're nowhere near that. So, I, you know, I don't, that's a tricky one, right? If you want to talk about like at the ebb and flow of history. Gotcha. Garrett? Well, and if you look at other, you know, you know, democracies around the world, there's no consensus about what free speech means either. You know what I mean? Like this is there's a there's a sense in which this is very much an open question you know what i mean like like that needs to be deliberated within within culture but yeah i mean i i i lean on the side that we should restrict speech as little as possible but how do we know when you know what i mean it's like that is a conversation that actually has to be had you know yeah it's a and i think it's a conversation the less the left has to have in very honest terms which seems very difficult right now because historically in the united states when there's been limits on free speech it has not benefited the left in fact quite the opposite like there's this classic example in the 1940s particularly the first half of that decade during world war ii the roosevelt administration cracked down on the free speech rights of like native-born fascists like hardcore and sent a lot of these people to prison because they were um, against the war advocates of fascism to some degree you know like and some of them might have been supportive of the nazis right and the left almost uniformly in the united states from the communist party to just the basic average democrat rooseveltian democrat supported these moves the aclu to its credit did not and so like the nation magazine which was a prominent sort of left leftist leftish liberal magazine then as now supported for example the crackdown on william dudley pelly who was a sort of silver shirt he's an american fascist my my advisor in grad school leo rebuffo called this the brown scare a sort of play on words with the red scare right huh. and and the nation supported this and then less than 10 years later the nation was being banned from libraries across the country in the midst of the red scare and I'll tell you, like in the grand scope of history, it was a much worse result for the left than it was for the right. Like we shouldn't, we just, we shouldn't sort of 
cave to the impulse to curtail free speech just because the people that we're curtailing we don't like because it's going to come back to haunt us on the left yeah so you agree that youtube should stop censoring alex jones got it <laughs> okay i'm on record now <laughs> now i'm going to clear canceled. that up yeah we the... didn't we didn't tell you about the in your face gotcha style of this podcast <laughs> With the, yeah, with the, with dramatic sound effects and on-screen graphics and Jer late '90s era Jerry Springer type production. We don't have any like the thing about the titles; it doesn't lend itself to like a sort of a verb verbization of of what we've done by 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 getting you pushing you into a corner. What are we What are we yeah. gonna say? You've been given. Yeah, given. You guys got to work on that one. Yeah, yeah, I know. Something in a in a Mortal Kombat announcer voice. Ermac wins friendship. Friendship again. A related question, I guess, to bridge off that one is one of the things I did have was I'm wondering is how much of the how much do the culture wars get, if not necessarily instigated, but at least escalated because it tends to be a they tend to be fought by, you know, or at least amplified by conservatives fighting with certain kinds of liberals rather than with like leftists. Because it's kind of a thing where I think somebody else pointed out that the cult, the cultural manifestations of what you could call managerial liberalism cause reaction in everybody else that say even you know that leftist well if you call that that leftist stuff would you know doesn't it's like two you know the, you know if nothing else you know the difference in affect between you know Bernie and, and Hillary for example I'm just wondering like how much yeah how much is just because it's it's like you know it's kind of like you know the two sides of it is just right a conservative idiot on CNN talking to arguing with cons a liberal idiot on CNN rather than anything else yeah, that's a good question, and I think the history there's complicated, but I think it can be explained pretty straightforwardly. I tend to think that the movements in the 60s, these liberation movements that I think sort of fall under the larger umbrella of the new left, they weren't like left in the sense of like a socialist left necessarily, but I do think that this was a true left. It was a part of the left. It wasn't liberalism per se, these movements for women's rights, women's liberation, gay liberation, black power, etc. But they sort of got over time by the 80s, 90s, and in particular by now, sort of elements of these movements were easily sort of commodified, co-opted, sopped up by the larger corporate culture in ways that happen all the time in the United States. I mean, American culture american political culture is ingenious in the sense that it incorporates and sops up dissent unlike any other i think and so now i think what you see is that i guess a sort of like cultural competency reigns supreme it's become a new orthodoxy that anybody in any kind of major bureaucracy in the united states from the cia to any corporation like i live in a town and the biggest corporation here that's headquartered here is State Farm Insurance, and they preach the same woke doctrine as now we know with the CIA and their recent commercial. And like it's become the new orthodoxy, and it's a sort of like multicultural liberalism that doesn't have any sort of teeth to it. And so, I, I mean, the, I was just thinking about this like, a good friend of mine is writing a book on 80s punk rock and its reaction to the Reagan administration. And I'm like, you couldn't have that kind of reaction to Trump because he's punk. He's the one in his like 
Proud Boy followers are the punks now. They're the ones reacting to the orthodoxy that is so strangling. And that's the sort of liberal, I guess, toothless multiculturalism that that I think the left needs and has been critical of and needs to continue to be critical of it. Yeah, it's kind of it goes back to one of the very, you know, one of the limitations of, I guess, the of, I could say, you know, the of first wave punk about how certain elements of American punk made were, were, I don't want to say transmogrified, but certainly were processed by first wave UK punk. And then fed back into, you know, this the standard feedback, Anglo-American feedback cycle, where now the, <laughs> at some point, punk became just like a very particular, you know, like, affect to the point where it was, all, you know, you would have uh, either leftist folks or just straight, like, these are ways that, you know, much like how, like, like Johnny Rotten has been saying a lot of stupid shit over the last couple, last few years, it was how people just kind of, like, capitalized on their, on their maladaptive uh, social issues, which is kind yeah. of like, you know, uh, you know, punk stance of, you know, we're rebelling against everything was, wasn't really a stance. It was, well, it was almost like more nihilistic or anything like that. Also, I have a book suggestion for your friend let me go grab it okay all right this is very unorthodox <laughs> jeremy doesn't usually leave the podcast to <laughs> go grab a book well while he's doing that i i don't know if you saw this but i, I was kind of curious about this because it seems to be a trend lately but there's this company called Basecamp. i have no idea what Basecamp does i think it's a like tech company or something but they had this new policy that they're banning workplace conversations about politics oh, wow hmm. And this seems to be something that's been happening. There's a crypto company, a crypto exchange called Coinbase that recently also did that. And I was sort of curious if you had any thoughts on why they seem to be going out of their way to try to just try to shut down cultural conversations entirely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I understand it's because cultural conversations seem so fraught in this moment and they're just trying to completely avoid that. But that's a really good sort of example of the curtailment of free speech. Like we, we like to, in terms of legal interpretation of free speech in the United States, we are much more um, liberal or libertarian than almost any other country in the world. And yet these law of free, our right to free speech does not really exist anytime we're sort of existing within an institution, particularly our work, our place of work, right. where we spend most of our time, right? So that's a like clear-cut example of like, do you really have free speech? You can't even talk about politics at work. And it's like the a lot of the impetus of, well, and I think this feeds into the culture war, the conservative impetus is to, as Corey Robin kind of puts it, is to like protect these what he calls private domains of power, which the which the workplace very much is, and and you know their dream is that the workplace would provide you with all the all the you know sort of fuel you need to have any kind of political con like like the politics of the of the workplace would be the politics in general for the for the yeah they I mean? they would like to go back to the old company town model where. You know, they have complete control over our lives as workers. Everything we buy, we buy from them. The money we use to buy is their script. And then, of course, they could they would also provide us with our own with our political ideas. I'm sure that would be the ideal world. I mean, these these fiefdoms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's very easy to say, well, just don't talk about politics at work. But the problem is that sometimes politics is work. I mean, if you look at a company like Google, the decisions they make have a tremendous political impact and in some cases a cultural impact as well. 
Similarly, I used to work for a... Fuck it, I used to work for Daimler Trucks and just discussing the their autonomous driving, the, you know, the droid trucks. It's kind of it's one of those things where it has... Ma- I think a lot of people, because a lot of just like well-meaning like techie folk who... You know, got in, uh, got into it. One of these days, I need to do an entire episode about just the weird mindset of like, of like post-war techno optimism. Because I used to be a lot like, you know, I mean, I'm an electrical engineer. I used to be a lot like that, and then I started listening to a few more podcasts, and that changed. But, but yeah, but just the discussion around the work that everybody was doing on. It's like, yeah, if you're at a technology company of any sort, the um, the the political economic. Uh, ramifications of what you're working on rare very rarely are you know kind of like are allowed to circulate amongst the grunts who are actually doing the work oh and the the two book suggestions i was going to give his one was called in fact i was going to try to get them on the show one of these days was p.e moskowitz wrote a book called the case against free speech and the other one was i want to suggest to you another another right another academic writer that i want to talk to at some point is matthew worley wrote a, is kind of a, I think a history professor. Where is it? History professor in the, yeah, professor of modern history at the University of Reading and has been written a lot of, a lot of books. It's kind of like a, written a lot of like Marxist history books on not only the Labor Party, but has been getting into the, like wrote this book called, yeah, No Future, Punk Politics and British Youth Culture, 1976 to 1984. It's one of the few books you will read that mentions both Screedy Politi and Gramsci in the same sentence. He's also, he's also writing one on 80s UK punk and zine culture, which I think is, uh, would have like a lot of, a lot of good crossover. But yeah, this was just one of those books that I, I've been recommending to everybody. It's like, yeah, if you want a materialist, you know, kind of like leftist review of what the hell is going on with uh, with UK punk when uh, you know the Ramones showed up and how that kind of spun off into a lot of things and then you, you then you mean in the course of the book you find out certain things like the first screwdriver album was partially funded by the B, by uh, the BNP the British National Party which is something like okay well that's the moment people always say well yeah the, the screwdriver's first album wasn't that was actually kind of good like well yeah I guess we've paid for it <laughs> How good is it now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Are we still a fan of Jackson Pollock after we discovered that the CIA was funding abstract expressionism? Like, it's. <laughs> does that diminish the quality? Yeah. Culture. Is it culture war or is it Cold War or is it both? The That's an anxiety that kind of goes through a lot of this stuff, right? I mean, uh, one of the things that I find really creepy about some of the modern conversations about pop culture is that I see a lot of people online referring to stuff as quote unquote degenerate art. And that is a literal Nazi term yeah. that was used to attack modernism. And that one kind of gives me the heebie jeebies. Yeah. For good reason. Yeah. The, oh, like, actually, that is, that's a good, other topic is both in terms of culture war, but also of like cultural, hi- modern cultural history is the current, and I don't know how current this is, but how, how far back this goes, but at least I think probably with the diminishment of, Polit- you know, politics in most people's lives is just being like this distant thing that you would see on cable news or would show up on, you know, show up in the newspaper sometime. But the the constriction of political thinking to well-intentioned folks to so that only, you know, only art and pop culture can really much only be discussed or has to go through this this filter of 
moral consideration before anything else, before aesthetics, before history, before contribution, before skill. It ha- why is kind of like, you know, any sort of cultural output, you know, why does it, it why does it have to primarily be fit through this kind of like hyper personalized hyper arbitrary political more you know hyper moralized view before we talk about anything I think it's you know this speaks to one of your like main interests and that's moral panics we've kind of been having like a 50 or 60 year long moral panic that I think goes back at least to the 60s and again it's like Sometimes it's really intense. Sometimes it's less intense. But we've genu- ever since the 60s, there's been a sort of like unspoken cultural consensus that we're really worried about the next generation, given the current contemporary pop culture, and really worried about the sort of conception of peer culture and the and its infusion with pop culture. You know, the famous, I guess you guys like The Simpsons, the famous Simpsons, like, what about the children? We're still... Cue Helen Lovejoy, yeah. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? What kind of an example are we setting? Yeah, we're still there, and and so I think that, to me, that's the main thing that explains it. There's, like, so much anxiety surrounding the massification of childhood. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I read something today, just today, about how about something I never think about is, which is that like kind of the notion of a teenager was actually a product of the '50s when we started sending pretty much all our children to this to have this one mass cultural experience at the same time called high school, and then we spent a lot of time since then analyzing that that you know that cultural institution and what it does to people and how people treat each other on its basis. I just uh, to me, that's a that was a really interesting notion about how the institution of a mass teenage culture uh, produced a generation of a certain kind that has manifested itself in, in the culture wars in a certain way. Yeah. So my my first book uh, was it's called Education in the Cold War. And I write a lot about this very question because it really wasn't until the 1950s in the U.S. when most, if not all, teenagers or people in their teens were expected to go to high school, right? This is, and so this is first time when people between the ages of like 13 and 19 or whatever are all together and they're all in the same institution and they're all sort of being conditioned in theory to the same norms. And so, yeah, like the word teenager spawns from that. And a lot of people were very fearful of it. There was a juvenile delinquency scare in the 1950s, and Congress had hearings about comic books and the sort of like bad influence they had on children. Seduction of the the innocent and all the Wortham shit. Yeah. And, you know, the other, but some, and then there were other aspects of American society, American capitalist society, society that really liked this idea because it was also the first time when many of these people who were in high school, these teenagers had a little bit of disposable income. And so like Madison Avenue started focusing on them as a particular culture. And this sort of adds to the anxiety and the, the, that that really was a moral panic that you, that I that I feel like we get play gets played out over and over again. And, and, and the, the rhetoric about what is causing the moral panic might change, but it's still at base this sort of like massification of youth culture and the sort of like con- anxieties surrounding the fact that 
parents and traditional institutions like churches don't have ultimate control over the destiny of young people. Yeah. The uh, no, just interesting what you're saying about how we finally had this. Well, the this mass cohort going through this particular mass experience all at once. And, you know, and the, the teenager being created from that, and, but all, you know, they had, all of them were expected to go through and, I guess, finish high school because I'm just thinking of like 10 years earlier, my own grandfather never dropped out. I think, I think he got his parents from, I think, great grandparents' permission. But yeah, he dropped out of high school when he was 16 and he enlisted in the Navy in February of 1942. And it was kind of, it's almost a thing of like, yeah, you had that same, not quite the same, but it was definitely a cohort of predefined youth. You know, their, you know, they had, they definitely had that same experience, but their experience was, you know, in either home front or enlisting and heading across the sea to get shot at. Yeah. And that didn't cause a moral panic. I mean, people were anxious, obviously, about sending the young men their their sons overseas to perhaps die against the Nazis or the Japanese, but it wasn't a moral panic. Like they were entrusting them to an institution that most people respected and revered. It's different. The high school thing was much different and there were political connotations because in the fifties and after, and this is a sort of persistent sort of wave of anxiety as well. The schools have always tilted at least theoretically more progressive in terms of like the type of it's a it's a more permissive a more progressive a more perhaps liberal a more cosmopolitan perhaps indoctrination Mm. i think that's always been overstated but from the conservative perspective that was always one of the things from a sort of traditional family perspective that was one of the things that caused so much moral panic gotcha well the, the, i guess the, just to i because i'm always a fan of everyone def- defining their terms can we talk about or uh, in, in define what is the difference between uh, between culture war and moral panic because i think there is a lot of crossover but they are distinct things and i'm wondering uh, can you have one without the other? I guess you could have one without the other. The culture wars just simply defined, at least as they've developed historically in the United States, are the, from my vantage point, the division that emerged in the 1960s between people, progressives or liberals who embraced a lot of the cultural transformations that were set off during the 1960s and those who rejected them and uh, against those who rejected those changes and oftentimes organized against those changes. So you might say it's progressives versus traditionalists. Uh, You might say liberals versus conservatives. But one side tended to be more religious and, and have a sort of, I guess, notion that there were certain traditions that had spanned the life of the United States that were being disturbed. And the other side tended to embrace cultural change as a as a sort of net good and tended to be less conservative or less concerned with traditions, tended to think of traditions as restrictive or oppressive. So those are the two sides of the culture wars. Moral panic seems to manifest itself in the culture wars often, sometimes, or I would say most of the time since the 1960s, because the traditionalists are, ups, are panicked or anxious about changing cultures that team that seem to have transformed mores, values. But I think that progressives or liberals have also had moral panics themselves. And so sometimes these terms get tangled. Sometimes because the liberals are 
panicked about, like, for example, Tipper Gore led the charge against what was termed porn rock or led the charge against obscene lyrics and obscene messaging and music, of course. We all know this with the Tipper stickers, right? And the PMRC. You know, she was a Democrat and had some liberal values, but I would say that her position was necessarily uh, conservative or traditionalist in that particular debate. I think more recently there's like, there was a moral panic, for example, during the entire Trump administration that emerged from the left about, well, Trump himself, about the sort of like supposed lack of the the things that he and his followers were saying and doing that seemed to go against the grain of what was sort of acceptable American political discourse. I think that was a moral panic, and we've seen manifestations of that that liberals have had. So it's not... And I don't, you know, you might say that this is a culture war, but it's if it is, it's playing out in sort of different terms than the previous ones. So I do think they're different. Gotcha. Yeah, and I just realized that in terms of moral panics coming from moral panic coming from leftists would be the and well, I mean, social media feeds into this because social media feeds in it's an it's an <laughs> we uh, you know it's it's an algorithmic algorithmically skewed mirror we see through a timeline darkly of the the leftist moral panic would be kind of like freaking out over a the appearance or any sort of existence of a red brown alliance or also like it would mean it's it's gone through different when someone discovered the term strasserite and decided to throw that out on the timeline and watch it go and you know to be like this club that people could beat each other with or even like because left media is now a thing now constant 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 accusation of who is a grifter and who isn't and it a classic example of a moral panic amongst liberals was during the most recent Democratic primary struggle when Elizabeth Warren made the claim behind made the claim that Bernie Sanders said a woman could never be president and the outpouring of sort of like panicked rhetoric mm -hmm. by her supporters. I mean, rather than interpret this as just this is like politics, you know, like these this is this was Warren trying to get an edge on Sanders, who was roundly beating her amongst followers that she thought she could win over. Mm -hmm. Rather than that, this was a moral panic. This was like, oh, my God, can you believe he did this? How wrong? You know, it was a moral panic. Gotcha. And I, I just you, you, you I experienced this <laughs> sense of moral panic, not personally, but witness, bearing witness to it almost every time I go on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. All right, Garrett, Jacob, do you have any questions? I, had a I question. have a little something, but go for it, Jeff. No, you go first. Well, why don't you listen to my question, and we'll see if it's too much of a pivot. One of the things I wanted to talk about was capitalism, and, and especially its relationship on the right. I mean, although there's plenty on the left that defend capitalism as well. The, the thing I always find interesting is that, in my opinion, capitalism is really good at absorbing culture, right? taking the parts it needs, discarding the parts it doesn't need, that isn't useful to it. And, and it's a major driver of what is actually causing the panics that we're talking about and the, the culture wars, I think, in general. And the thing that I find interesting is that on the right, you know, I guess previous to the late 70s, early 80s, it was, you know, they, it was 
it seemed like to be treated like a sort of ugly reality, right? That we had to have capitalism to have progress, yada, yada. And then that changed entirely to to almost full-throated endorsement to the point now where literally members of that culture war will elect a, you know, (laughs) a vulgar cartoonization of the capitalist emphatically. So do you... What do you think about like that uneasy marriage there and how it and how it plays out in this? Yeah, that's a excellent question and I think, you know, there's a way to answer it that will make sense hopefully. So, <clears throat> that's always been the tension in conservatism since maybe the French Revolution or maybe a little after, but it's particularly the tension in American conservatism in the 20th century, because I think you're exactly right that capitalism, a market economy based on a profit system exacerbates and feeds off of any type of sort of cultural change, including and sometimes especially the ones that the right dislikes. Now, there have been plenty of sort of ways in which I think the right has effectively and logically married their cultural and economic conservatism. So like, for example, the issue of feminism, part of the critique of feminism by conservatives was that you're creating sort of like by allow by sort of like emboldening women to live as they might say as men and sort of have whatever lives they want to live instead of these traditional lives of sort of being wives and mothers you are ensuring that very expensive liberal government agencies will sort of step in and take the place of the family take the place of the mother you know, like the the nightmare of subsidized childcare. having spent time in Denmark there's nothing nightmarish about it it's quite nice but yeah, Portland just voted in universal pre-K as of November of last year. For so, yeah, s- slowly, slowly, certain parts are getting to there. So you can see the way the sort of economic and cultural side of things, and at times, plays out, or at least in terms of like opposition to a state that seems increasingly, in the eyes of conservatives, to embody liberal values or feminist values. You see something similar happen in the 60s and 70s with regards to schools in the sense that um, the schools increasingly seemed like places in the eyes of conservatives of like liberal experimentation programs run to indoctrinate children. And so since the school is like an arm of the state and the state seems to be in this sense almost like a sort of realm of anti-capitalism. I mean, it's not, but that's the way many conservatives interpreted it. You can see how at least, maybe not pro-capitalism, but you can see how anti-statism, which works very well with a sort of like defensive capitalism, you can see how anti-statism melded quite nicely with cultural conservatism in a number of different ways. That so like the tr- the sort of like standard historian's argument about conservatives is that anti-communism is what brought together different strands of conservatism. The the traditionalist cultural conservatives came together with the like free market libertarian conservatives like Hayek or Friedman over the issue of communism and fighting the Cold War. They all hated the commies and they all hated and they all thought that you know the United States had to organize against communism worldwide and domestically but so I don't know if that answers your question, but like, but there's still this basic tension. And so when I look at like the, the changes that were set off 
by the 1960s or that really came to sort of like became more concrete in the culture in the 60s and after the left won some of these if you want to think about cultural liberation as part of the left and the right won some of these if you want to think about like neoliberalism or libertarianism as a as a as a conservative economic model or a conservative economic priority in both cases like a libertarian both are sort of libertarian the cultural libertarianism and the economic libertarianism sort of won the day of the 1960s the left wins the left sort of enjoys some of that and the right enjoys some of that or just in general it seems like older institutions are falling by the wayside it's not to say that they're not being replaced by equally insidious institutions but the older institutions kind of fall by the wayside, whether it be the New Deal or whether it be the traditional family. And thus, I don't know, that's why I guess like the 1960s, if you want to think about it from a leftist perspective that is socialist, is, is the 60s are kind of a mi- mixed bag, maybe more negatives than positives. Right, because it produced, I mean, like the Silicon Valley where, you know, they would have they would have mostly thought of themselves as, you know, how controlling and, and dominating that what they've essentially created by now is really yeah. interesting california yeah, or, Matt, or like you know advertising the advertising industry right i thought you know Mad Men sort of captures this perfectly in the way that sort of they increasingly incorporate or sop up counterculture into their selling of capitalism selling of the products of capitalism i think that's like madison avenue silicon valley there's like huge, really sort of vanguardist, important realms of capitalism that are entirely sort of like quote unquote left. Yeah, the two things I'm, I'm thinking of is one, I mean, even I think I was listening. I think I, yeah, because I listened to John Densmore's books on tape, and he was talking about how even back in like 1968, 1969, I think it was I think it was GM who wanted to license light my fire for a, a for a car commercial like even back then when the door when, you know when the doors were an active thing and you, and you know cu- and the counterculture was in full effect it's like you know it's been going on since like since then at least through the- jacob what was your question what was my question oh i was sort of curious because you were you mentioned it earlier that you teach a history class that starts from the civil war and goes forward and i was sort of wondering are there strains in the culture that you see going back into the 19th century that had a big impact on the 20th in terms of sort of where those battle lines were drawn? I mean, obviously, religion would be a big component there. Yeah, so just in terms of thinking about the culture wars through the lens of religion, obviously, um, the sort of like foot soldiers of the culture wars on the right are white evangelicals. And white evangelicals have been the dominant force in American culture for the most part, had been throughout the entire history, at least going back to the um, Second Great Awakening of the 1830s. And there are various points in American history where sort of like modern secular values sort of come to the surface in ways that get them animated and organized. And so like going back to the 19th century, there's a full-throated resistance to Darwinism. Like as th- this is seen as the existential threat to evangelical 
Protestant values culture or or the sort of historical interpretation of the Bible, these types of things, biblical criticism. And so you see this sort of come to the surface with the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1924, Dayton, Tennessee. So there's like, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it seems like H.L. Mencken was in the mix for a lot of those conversations. Yeah, he was like, I mean, he's an interesting character because um, super elitist, in many ways conservative, but he hated more than anyone anyone else the sort of those whom he considered the rubes, the hicks, the evangelicals. He hated William, Jen- William Jennings Bryan with a passion. And William Jennings Bryan, of course, is like one of the key spokespeople for this white Protestant evangelical culture. And when it comes to the issue of like religion in the public sphere and Darwinism, you know, we, he is somebody who we would now consider conservative. And yet on a whole host of other issues, he would have what we would consider liberal or left wing values. And so a lot of these alignments get scrambled across the 20th century. It would have been extremely common in the early 20th century for a sort of white evangelical, very religious, traditionalist, cultural conservative to argue that capitalism or rather they probably would have blamed corporations in particular was threatening the American family, right? This is one of William Jennings Bryan's major arguments. That becomes extremely rare as we've talked about as as you get to the second half of the 20th century. So some of this gets scrambled. For me, what's interesting to think about is that this term Christian right only really emerges uh, in the 70s and 80s in part because this is the first time perhaps in American history when this like large chunk of the culture sees looks at the national culture and doesn't see itself represented necessarily in the national culture, right or wrong. And thus they get organized politically to the degree that they hadn't before because they feel like it's necessary to do that. So that like those the sort of religious struggles go back to the 19th century for sure. There's some major differences. The Protestants and the evangelicals in the 19th century were almost always sort of in battle with Catholics. Yep. But by the, by the time you get to the 80s, a conservative Catholic is much more likely to see him or herself in alignment with a conservative Protestant than, than a liberal, right? So denomination or like it seemed almost like less important. The path to heaven seemed almost less important than winning political power at a cultural level, right, for these people. There's other really interesting strains of the culture that have persisted in ebbs and flow, social Darwinism. <laughs> was so prominent in the late 19th century if you go back and read anything from that so you know i'm like sort of mired in the socialist literature of the late 19th and early 20th century and it's so rooted in darwinism and their big struggle was darwin was right about a whole bunch of things but the social darwinists are wrong in terms of applying darwin to sort of the hierarchies within American or within human culture, right? So social Darwinism is still such a part of our culture and seems like a really powerful rationalization of inequality that persists to this day. One question I did have is wondering, is the is much like everything else where everything else seems to be speeding up everywhere all the time, is the speed 
of I don't know the culture war arc you could call it like the regular you know the the storyline yeah narrative arc I guess you could say the process is that speeding up from past time from from previous eras because I'm one of the things I'm thinking because we talked about how in the 70s and the 80s like how well I mean shit up until very 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 recently you had this like decade long like organized you know hate effort going on against you know just American gay people. Which lasted for decades, but then eventually, you know, eventually that has kind of faded away. With now, it's just the with the the rapid adva- prominence and advancement of like of like you know trans rights now being it's the kind of like going from where things were to where they are now, and but you know that that's all happened in the span of less than a decade. So I'm just wondering, is like is you know is with the the speeding up of everything else is that also is that is are we gonna are we can we expect that to be a feature of the cultural war process? It seems to me yes. Like I think you just really sort of pinpointed something that as a historian having a difficult time wrapping my head around because most of the cultural changes that I study historically take so long to develop and like trans rights is a great example of like this is very in the in the scheme of things very recent very new and very rapid to the point now where i mean i'm sure we can all sort of reference these personal anecdotes my sixth grade son has three trans kids in his class and you know my partner and i like ask him questions about it like how do all the kids think about it and he just he thinks this us asking about it us caring is stupid like it's just normal now maybe this isn't going to be true everywhere among sixth graders everywhere but the fact that nobody in his class seems to think it's different or unusual or weird or bad yeah yeah, or good or bad, it's just it is. Yeah. That almost seems unprecedented. I, you know, I'd have to really think about that. Yeah, I'm remembering remembering an onion headline from I think the mid or the late aughts or something like, you know, Supreme Court okay's gay marriage. You know, with the headline of like, why are we even arguing about this? This is <laughs> this is bullshit. Why are we arguing about this? This is this is nothing. Can we go? Can we go get lunch instead? It's kind of a thing of like, yeah, yeah it's just a thing of like, oh, okay, well, you know, a, such a massive rapid shift in understanding. Uh, kind even of like yeah okay well you know this thing that I'm really I'm really curious though where the sort of legal aspect of this goes from here because you know the argument against gay gay marriage for example let's face it was always a religious argument and eventually the ruling the the various court rulings including Oberfell against it had to sort of like take that out of the equation and say what are we talking about here if there's not a relig- there can't be a religious rationale what are we talking about here i mean that could play out in a whole different in a whole range of ways if we just want to think about the strict interpret legal interpretation of something like marriage i mean polygamy really shouldn't be illegal if we're just thinking about the strict religious interpretation of marriage so i you know i'm just i'm interested where all of this goes yeah going it's going to be a hell of a ride well touching on what i was talking about earlier though it makes me a little nervous not necessarily because i'm opposed to any of it but just because the speed with which things change to me implies that the ebb can come just as quickly as the flow and so you know things might be going in a favorable direction for a while but they can very very quickly snap back it seems like it's possible yeah i would never rule that out like i'm somebody who thinks like these types of things it's unlikely but i don't know and i i don't think like the like one of the problems with the sort of anxieties about speech on the left right now 
in in with regards to issues like this is like I I think there are like tons of legitimate questions that should be on the table that aren't on the table like as speaking as someone who's fervently in favor of trans rights right mm-hmm. same it should it, it should should we be able to sort of freely discuss whether like trans kids under the age of 18 should actually undergo any kind of permanent hormonal or surgical like that to me that should be on the table and it almost feels like it's not so like I'm in favor of an expansion of rights and in favor of a loose, uh, a very sort of expansive definition of free speech, both. And I think we need both. And I don't know that we have both right now on the left. Yeah, I'm wondering, because it's such a, it's, it's almost like, yeah, the discussion about the kind of, the discussions that need to happen to kind of develop or further, like how do we, like, you know, trans rights, how, how, how do we, how do we integrate you know, if you know, it's like okay, you know, they're they're valid people, and these are valid categories. Now, how do we integrate that in with the rest of society, cultural norms, or anything, or basic patterns of? But it's it's almost like I think there, and I think a lot of times there is a lot of, not necessarily a lot of pushback, but a lot of ex- I think there is the difficulty of more of an exposed nerve because these are extreme. You know, some of the shit is like life and death for people, and so yeah. just the. Especially since we don't really have, you know, we don't have public conversations much anymore. We have spectacular ones that are yeah. that are blasted out through social media, which skew again. You know, we see through a timeline darkly, and it's almost like the, there's the difficulty of like a lot of people, you know, even like if every every like you know amongst well-intentioned people, like okay, well, we should talk about this and you know, we should work, you know, you know, we we again, you know, we accept the full validity, and yeah, we want to bring you know trans folks as like as a, a regular part of society, but like well, let's figure out. Let's talk about how do we work this, what do we need to change to work this in, and that, because of the fact that it's such a fraught topic, and because a lot of people have been open, you know, like, again, life and death topic, that it's, I don't know if it's like, necess- it's, I don't know if it's like minefield or eggshells or something, but it's just, it's, it's just kind of a thing where a lot of people are so, so on edge that no i agree with you i think though if we were like serious if we took it seriously as a life and death topic we would need to encourage more speech more different kinds of speech about the issue so to me this is like a problem of the culture wars we're so tribal on this and many other issues that people you as you said walk on eggshells because we fear offending our tribe and the, we fear the consequences of offending our tribe like i take even even professional historians who, in theory, we should sort of like we're in the business of questioning and critically interrogating all assumptions and arguments and narratives like that should be our business, right? But we play to the tribe as much as anyone else. And, and I take, for example, the sort of debate about 1619 mm-hmm. that has taken place for the last few years. Because the Trumpies, because the Trump administration in particular organized this 1776 commission, the sides of the debate were so clearly aligned, and we, as as most of us as historians, are so like aligned against Trump that it seemed like so many of my colleagues who really should have known better adopted the 1619 project narrative like full throated, Mm, yeah, wholeheartedly in ways that they should not have because there's serious problems with it and you know it's like one of it's actually i think historians will write about this 20 or 30 years from now in pretty hilarious terms because the only website that prominently published 
critiques of 1619 from the left was a Trotskyist website. It's pretty wild stuff. But like, this is kind of like what I'm talking about in terms of like when you see moral panic, the logic of the moral panic play out on the left. It's it's very tied to the sort of culture wars tribalism. And so there, you know, there's a moral panic about the Trump administration. Maybe we were right to be panicked about certain aspects of the Trump administration. But does that mean that as a result, we're to lose all of our critical faculties? Yeah, that's the that's one of the kickers is, I guess, even from like a, looking back historically is from all the examples that we've talked about, you know, you've covered in your book and written about and a lot of us, like, say, the satanic panic have lived through. Going forward, are there suggestion or is there what are some ideas of let's say more positive behaviors that we can we can devise or at least emphasize or at least attempt to try to do so that you know to work you know even amongst you know not just you know against the right wingers but even like amongst the left itself to kind of like work the shit out so we don't have you know how do we head off or how do we diffuse. If if it's possible, moral you know moral panics or even like internal left culture were from from igniting. Assume again, assuming this is possible. Yeah, I don't know if it's possible. I try to not be angry and sectarian online or in person. I mean, in person I never was, but it's easier to be angry and sectarian online. I try not to be because I feel like that's the wrong approach. But that maybe that's just me. Like I'm really big on this issue of free speech and so i i just use history it's never worked out well for the left to be against free speech it always comes back to bite us in the ass so say what you will about alex jones on youtube it's not really a that's not a a flag i'm gonna plant and defend on a hill but like if if we make the curtailment of free speech one of our main issues and even if it's Trump on Twitter or whatever, I think that will come back to bite us in the ass. It always has historically. But but yeah, I mean, you ask a good question. I'm not going to be like the sort of like, I'm not somebody who's going to say that we need less impassioned or more civic discourse, civil discourse, right? Because sometimes angry rhetoric is called for, but maybe more patient rhetoric with one another whom we consider well-intentioned potential allies yeah comrades yeah or comradeship yeah and i think that's one of the things i've been working out in my head like over the last year is how do you do that when again because we don't um all of our pub so many of our pub well i mean in the last year all public the public doesn't exist public spaces don't really haven't really existed but it's like how do we how do we even come up with a discussion space for this a public space for this that is not online I still don't think that a lot of people fully appreciate. I mean, I've been online since I got a modem when I was I got a modem when I was 14 in 1990. So it's like I still think like popular. We do not understand how online expression differs from in-person expression or even I mean, at least, you know, at least Skype chat. You're at least seeing somebody else's face. Most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I would never make a Luddite argument when it comes to this. Like, obviously, there's no going back. We can't be nostalgic. But I do think we should work to enhance, especially as hopefully the pandemic is coming to an end. Fingers crossed. Get your vaccinations. Yeah, Um, get your shots, folks. Hopefully, people can embrace more face-to-face. Like, when I'm in a classroom, like, especially a small seminar room with my students, or if, like, I go to a reading discussion group with my local DSA chapter, 
can have conversations, it seems to me, in ways that are much less possible online in any format online. They, they're just like they're more real. They're more honest. Yeah. And we need more of that in our lives. It's, but it's not. And then maybe we can sort of take some of the things we learn from those discussions online. But probably like more in person, less online would be one approach. But, I, you know, that's like, I don't know. Seem It almost seems Luddite when I hear myself say that. But <laughs> Hey, the, uh, the the Luddites were right about a lot of things. In fact, I just had I just got Gavin Mueller's book about you know saying like yeah the Luddites were, pretty much just say yeah the Luddites were correct uh, that I still need it's on my it, which is on the pile of books for, yeah. you know books I need to read from just like the last six months alone, much less the older ones. I've re- right. I've read chunks of that book. That's a cool book. He Gavin's really smart. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I've I've been driven offline by the pandemic. I can't do it anymore. Like I can't. I can't talk politics really at all for the next little bit of time. But if I can do it, it would be in, in a more public forum. Yeah, it, it is. Ru- it is ugly, man. And everyone seems to be living in some manner of fantasy. You know what I mean? There's some hallucination that each group of people talking has, whether it's Russia or you know what I mean? So sorry, that was just me chiming in with my personal experience on this phenomenon. That's been my experience as well, and I haven't necessarily left online discourse, but I feel like I'm much more of a sort of flaneur, much more of an observer of it than I am a participant these days, because to participate just seems so fruitless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that said, face-to-face conversations can go pretty badly as well. I mean, Pittsburgh DSA, I was reading an article about how that basically just entirely collapsed due to basically arguments that people were having about certain issues in that area. And I mean, if you go back to the hilarious history of the Trotskyites, I mean, a lot of the problems that they had were face to face as well. I think the internet definitely destroys your brain in some particular ways, but I think it just exacerbates problems that already exist in normal discourse as well yeah you're, you're right jacob i wouldn't want to romanticize uh pre-internet discourse especially since i've read a lot of the correspondence of the socialist labor party in the late 19th century and like they would give the current sort of twitter discourse a run for its money in terms of incivility that's for sure yeah that's part yeah that's one of the things i think we need to figure out even as like a left culture going forward is like, yeah, all, you know, all of the writer, you know, all of the tre- the treasured writers for the first century of like leftist thinking, you know, wrote in a very particular style. But it's like we don't know how we <laughs> we don't have to be dicks to each other constantly. It's like, you know, we can just, you know, dial down the affect just a little bit. You know, you say it's like you don't dunk on each other. You dunk on you dunk on uh, elected officials, not each other, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I mean, that 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 is a venerable tradition, too. Right. Like, I mean, Marx loved owning people. Yeah, that's which is the problem because that he also he, but he and he was the best at it. Yeah, yeah, but it was like his he was like his. I mean, I don't say it was his sole affect, but it was like so dominant that it kind of was the one he really. I mean, Christ, he lost eighteen months of work because he because he was he he spent eighteen months of his life writing a diss track on somebody who he had a, who he had a quibble with for God's sakes. Yeah, I mean, you could also argue he that distract was him working out some important ideas some of his biographers have argued mm. i don't know i i would say his time might have been better spent doing other things but yeah yeah i mean it's it's a problem like this is a question i constantly ask myself why is the left so sectarian and why has it been really since 
the French Revolution. And I think like the inability the the inability for the left to ever really seriously threaten power has a lot to do with that. The right has a much easier time coming together because they they usually have much more power and their goals are much more straightforward in terms of like maintaining certain hierarchies that yeah. seem, you know seem with the right kind of money and power easy to maintain relative to like flattening out these hierarchies which just is always going to be a, a huge and painful struggle as a as a non-historian i can be very irresponsible and say that the right has basically just had to find a way to continually preserve feudalism in some form or another over the past you know five six hundred years whereas the left has to invent something well it feels like it has to invent something new and what that something is is very much an open question right yeah yeah i mean so like forever protestants burned each other at the stake on different interpretations of how to go to heaven and ultimately that's what we on the left are trying to do is trying to create a heaven on earth of sorts and i don't you know like i I advise against infusing our ideas with too much utopianism but ultimately that's what we're trying to do is like create a much better existence for all people and um of the type that frankly has never existed and so like we're gonna it's a it's a almost it seems like a nearly impossible task that we've tasked ourselves with and we're going to debate hotly about how to achieve something that seems so impossible gotcha. and i think there's also a problem just a little bit with you know personal psychology's desire for power desire for attention in a public spotlight you know there's there's that those issues too which i think that's not unique to the left of course but i think that that gets in the way of or that causes trouble with how sex you know, sects form and how they're preserved and that sort of thing. Yeah. And capital, let's face it, like living in modern capitalist society is so fucking alienating. You know, one of the things that drives people to the left is recognizing our sort of own alienation. And so I think people bring that into their leftist organizing or or their leftist online discourse this um sort of open sense of trying to solve the problem of personal and social alienation right and it's it's kind of a thing of it's at a certain point um yeah you need to have a little your your in-person meetings need to have a little of both but i've always shown that a group therapy session and a group planning session can't you can't really do both at once they might both be important yeah they're but... both they're, they're both critical but uh, yeah, but at some point some of the things that you that some of the, th- the things that you need to do to accomplish either goal can be can be you know not just contradictory but you know good for one bad for the other but I guess uh, once again, thanks for spending your time with me today. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm really enjoying this this talk a lot. The I guess unless you guys have any other questions, like the last question I have on just on this particular topic is just partially a joke. But have only the dead seen the end of culture war? Yeah, yeah, probably true. Like that was my late great friend and my dissertation advisor, Leo Rebuffo. Brilliant man used to, you know, he's the one who kind of nudged me towards writing a history of the culture wars. But for him, it was always so-called culture wars because they weren't actual wars. He always said, you want to see an actual culture war? Let's sort of study the militia attacks on the Mormons as they tried to move westward in the early 19th century. That's an actual culture war. But also, he said, it's just a sort of like persistent, never-ending feature of American life, if not 
like modern life in general. And yeah, Stephen Stephen Prothero wrote that book on it, the which I think um, on just like the history of the culture wars. But I think he was more of uh, what was it? Why liberal? Why, yeah, his book was why liberals win the culture wars even when they lose elections. But it kind of gets back into like the nineteenth century stuff of how the hated the hated outsider long you know centuries before it was Muslims was Catholics and Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. So Damn yeah, papists. Well, yeah. So we're unlikely to see dissipate, I guess. But it doesn't mean that, especially those of us on the left, should focus on a particular sort of way of fighting the culture wars. Like I'm a firm believer that, like Bernie Sanders or a sort of more um, social democratic left approach to public rhetoric, is a better way to achieve the things that we want to achieve than fighting sort of every last culture war rhetorical battle yeah war war never changes and on that note if we if we have if uh, if you have time can you talk a bit about the book that you're writing yeah sure so and you guys just let me come back on the show when that book's out because sure. that would a really fun topic. I think you guys would enjoy talking about it. It's called Karl Marx in America, and it's a history. It starts, chapter one is about what Marx himself thought about the United States and how his close attention to the United States formed his ideas, particularly as they, as he worked them out in Capital. But then from there, it just is a long history of how Marxist ideas have played out in American history, how Americans have thought about Karl Marx, both in terms of, like, for example, the early 20th century labor movements or wobblies and how how Marxist ideas informed their understanding of American capitalism and what to do about it, on through like how Cold War liberals used Marx as their foil in terms of trying to define an American liberal tradition, through conservatives in the 50s and 60s who wrote critical tracts of Marx as a way really to criticize American liberalism onto the present. And so, like, for example, I think there have been three booms in American Marxism in terms of, like, this sort of positive flow of Marxism, the Gilded Age when the labor movement and these rad- and the, then the Socialist Party in particular takes up Marxism, takes up car- the ideas of Karl Marx. The 1930s, of course, when the Communist Party and various other left-wing groups really took Marx seriously. Sorry, there are four. And then the 1960s, which is a really sort of strange interpretation of Marx, that's when the young Marx is, mm-hmm. the young Marx of alienation is discovered by a lot of these young radicals. And then I think we're living in one now, although it's kind of ill-defined. Right. Well, how, how do we define something that we, are, that we are stuck in the middle of? Exactly. It's certainly tough for a historian to do. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Well, then we will have to uh, have you on for that. The uh, yeah, I think Matt Crispin was opining on one of his vlogs about you know weird you know count, alt history counterfactuals of what happened, what would have happened had Marx and Engels actually pulled up stakes and moved to say 1850s Texas with like the rest of the German immigrants. Like, what would have happened with Ari? Would he have survived? You know, the Confederates hanging all all the left wing Germans down there. But yeah, yeah, yeah I've I've thought about that. 
there's a great novel in the uh, sort of historical counter counter historical fiction in the works there. Karl Marx, Texas Ranger. He actually uh, seriously considered emigrating to Texas of all places when he was a young man. Mm-hmm. So I think that would. Oh but, man, I'm a, I'm a Texan. That would have that would have really done my heart good to know. <laughs> but chances are he wouldn't have ended up being Karl Marx. Yeah, probably not. It's, that is one thing. The one of the, the more under, I think, underappreciated and underexamined bits of, let's just say, history of the Americas were were the waves of German immigration into Texas and Mexico. Because it's one of those things. Because I think that American immigration history is so focused on like one country in one area. It's like New England and England, and that's it. Yeah. Much less. I mean, barely even talking about Virginia and England, or say the Carolinas via the Caribbean via England. That you know. Well, that, yeah, because of my because of the topic of my book, I've read a lot on German immigration, in particular to the Midwest, because most of the early. American socialists, they called themselves communists at the time, were Germans who were acquaintances of Marx's. They fought with him in the 1848 revolutions, were kind of came to the U.S., whereas Marx and Engels went to London or England. Mm-hmm. They came to the U.S. Most of them ended up in the Midwest, places like Cincinnati or St. Louis, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Chicago, and, yeah. And most of them were early volunteers for the Union Army in the Civil War. Many of them rose to leadership positions, and they almost always fought on the Western Front of the Civil War. And they, more than any, almost anyone else other than like black people, define the war itself as a war of liberation, a war of emancipation. And so, like, there are, there are these stories of these German 48ers who are like freeing slaves as they move their way south along the Mississippi ahead of any sort of decree by Lincoln or the federal government. Yeah, I think that was uh, the general who came out of that scene. That was what, August Willich, I think his name was. He, yeah, Willich was one Willich. of them. Really sort of interesting, important one was Joseph Vedemeyer, who ended up being in charge of the whole St. Louis district during the war. I and mean, he was really close friends with Marx and Engels. And they, you know, like Marx and Engels wrote a lot about the Civil War. And it was almost all based on not just newspaper reading, but their correspondence with these people who were actually participating in it yeah on the ground sweet okay well the last thing the last the the last thing we do in any of our shows is is to ask everybody for recommendations and endorsements what have what have y'all been digging on lately that you want to want to let others know about any of you who who wants to go first i will go first let's see a couple of things i watched the movie atlantic city recently the louis mall movie with uh, susan sarandon and i want to say was it Burt Lancaster? Just an excellent movie. Check it out. I would also make that a tacit endorsement of the the Criterion Channel app. It's ten bucks. That's a bargain uh, for a bunch of great weird cinema that you won't be able to find anywhere else. And I guess on the topic of culture wars, I I just read something. I don't know that it's a hearty recommendation, but if you're the sort of person that might enjoy this sort of thing. I read the Leibniz-Clark correspondence, which was a set of letters between Samuel Clark, who is a uh, friend and devotee to the emerging, uh, well, of Newton, of Isaac Newton himself, and, of course, Gottfried Leibniz, the the continental rationalist. And they were basically having, you know, a letter correspondence about whether the Newtonian physics or the Leibnizian sort of metaphysics was going to was going to prevail. And, of course, we know what 
basically happened. And it's kind of funny because you can look at it through the vision of like contemporary internet discourse and you can see some of the same sort of human pettiness sort of sort of seep through in the letters and stuff. So that's the only reason I'm recommending that is because that's the last thing I read. But if you like that sort of thing, give it a shot. You'll I think I definitely recommend Atlantic City. That's a great movie. Gotcha. Cool. Andrew? Well, I am just woefully behind on pop culture right now. Doesn't necessarily, yeah, doesn't necessarily have to be pop culture, but yeah. Yeah, so I'm just going to give two uh, reading suggestions to people who are interested in Karl Marx, since that's what I'm reading, and since people, your listeners, might perhaps be interested in that. So Maybe a few. There's like... There have been a whole set of recent biographies of Marx, and I'm not a huge fan of most of them, but there's one by a Swedish guy by the name of Sven Erik Liedman, which... That, um, is, that the, is, that the, is that the phone book? Yeah, so it's called A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx, which was recently translated for Verso. And I just love it. I think it's the best biography ever written about Marx, but it's the one that doesn't seem to be talked about enough from my vantage point and then the other book about marx that i just absolutely love and it's a really like fun read i think and that is mary gabriel love and capital it's a Hmm. book about marx and his his interpretation of how his relationships with the women in his life in particular his wife jenny and his three daughters how that led him to be Karl marx i guess it's really good cool and thought of that it's neat jacob I have no recommendation. We live in a vast cultural wasteland, and there's nothing <laughs> nothing to enjoy, no pleasures to derive. Sour, oh, no. rotten fruit on the ground everywhere I look. So in other words, you're endorsing a, a Theodore Adorno. <laughs> oh, no, to be clear, I'm shoving all of the rotten fruit into my mouth. Like, I'm watching a ton of stuff. I just haven't seen anything I would recommend yet. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I will recommend a uh, recent Netflix debut, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which is put out by Sony Animation. And there's if you are a fan of stuff like the Lego movie or like uh, the Spider-Man uh, multiverse animated feature watch this because it's it just in i don't want yeah i guess mind blow you know it's funny it's really well done it's mind blow mind blowing animation because they change up animation sometimes you'll see like three different kinds of animation on the screen at once and if you're yeah just if you're a fan of like lord miller stuff or you know just want to see the story of you know it's effectively this you know the protagonist is like this is a queer first year film student and the kind of road trip she takes with her family and the the stuff they get up from there it is very well done and very very worth your time so yeah all right awesome okay last but not least I want to thank professor andrew hartman for coming on the show everybody check out his book which i would hold up to the camera except this is an audio only show it's see a war for the soul of america history of the culture wars second edition put out by the university of chicago press and keep an eye out for his Marx in America book. Cool, thank you. And is there a is there a, uh, anything you would also like like to promote, or either way, like any way that if anybody has any questions or comments, can get a hold of you? I don't need to promote anything else, but people can find me at Twitter at uh, Hartman Andrew. Awesome. Uh, you guys have anything you'd like to plug or that kind of a thing? I, I had one more question. Oh, okay, Jacob. Do you, what was what was your question? What is culture? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man. We'll just end it on a really simple straightforward one, right? <laughs> yeah, we need well that, yeah, that's that's the, that's the end of, you know, end of Star Trek episode cliffhanger where there's a lot of dialogue and then it go, you know, the dun 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 <laughs> to be conti- to be continued in the next episode of Star Trek the Next Generation. Well, is it a, if it's a serious question I could get into it, but it's a <laughs> How much well, it's a, it's 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 one o'clock at our at our side, so at this point whatever you have time for. <laughs> Let's just say that it's something that historians, philosophers, theorists have been debating for a long, long time. The book that I think I would recommend above all others on this question is Raymond Williams. That sounds familiar. I think it's Society and Culture. Let me make sure of that because it's brilliant. It's old, too, and I am a big fan of old books. I always tell my students especially my grad students, read old books because we have a problem of getting stuck in orthodoxies and reading old books is a way to sort of get your head space out of orthodoxies. Yeah, hmm. I agree with that. Cult- you like a... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say uh, an old book I really like that is kind of touches on culture is Ideology and Utopia by Karl Mannheim. That's one I yeah, really Yeah, that's love. a good one. So this book is Culture and Society. It's by Raymond Williams. I believe it came out in like 1958. He was a British Marxist, but a p- pretty peculiar one. And I just, I think it's a brilliant book. So I'm answering your question with homework. <laughs> Very <laughs> professorial of you. Yeah, the, right. uh, the, uh, the reading never ends. Never Awesome. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank you again for your time, for hanging out with us on a lovely day, and uh, for chatting up. And then I guess we will talk to you at some point again in the future when we figure something else out. So, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. So when I try to shut my mouth, come out anyway. So when I speak my mind, that's when we connect. Yeah, but that's not. Politically correct.